0: The next session, this is the last session, Jacqueline will do a presentation. As we all know that COVID-19 brought so many challenges, threats, and concerns in our lives. One of the most famous authors, Arudanze Roy, said the following about the pandemic. Historically, pandemics have forced us humans to break with the past and imagine the world anew this one is not different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We lost people that we love, but also there are so many great lessons that we can take out of COVID-19. So the next presentation is going to be about that. So with that, I'm going to call upon Jacqueline, who is a member of Sahisa Central Region Executive Committee responsible for professional development, and also she's the Executive Head of Education Incorporated Boutique School located in Sentin. The stage is yours. Thank you.
1: Thank you for the introduction, Senele, and thank you for the opportunity to speak to you all this morning. Now I don't have to introduce myself because Sonel has already done that, but I'm one half of a team. And the other half of the team is sitting over there, Gersha, my husband, Uh, he's the head, I'm the executive head. We founded the school together in 2013 and yeah, we're a boutique school, meaning that we're a small school and everything that comes with a small school. And I heard during COVID quite a few people saying to us, you know, you, you guys are lucky because small schools can pivot quickly in a time of crisis. And I think there was probably some truth to that. We probably were, um, it may have been a little easier for us to do that sort of thing. It's not necessarily the case in all aspects. We certainly had to be financial wizards to keep a small school floating during all of this. And um, what I've found is that COVID and the COVID responses of schools, the different COVID responses of schools and the teachings and learnings that have come from this had less to do with school size, and probably a lot more to do with how we, the leaders of the sector, think about education as a whole, and what our visions are for education moving forward as we come out of the pandemic. So now for some storytelling, February 2020. Can you all feel your your stomach clench when we say February 2020? And it was maybe the second week in February when I arrived at school one morning and I went into the office and Gersh was sitting there with my ops manager and I said, you know guys, this coronavirus thing, we keep, we're hearing more and more about it, the SARS-CoV-2 thing that's coming out of China and these tentacles are really reaching out across the world faster than, than we are really equipped for. I think it's time we need to develop a COVID contingency plan. And then a few weeks after that, we put the, the, we did put the COVID plan together. And a few weeks after that, we went to our board meeting and I presented the COVID plan. And the chairman did the whole thing and the chairman afterwards said to me, you know, Jackson, the plan's great, but it's never gonna come to that. But admittedly, when I pulled up the COVID, the original COVID plan that I did in March of 2020, I did have to giggle when I saw that under threats that I had put the threat Of an actual closure was minimal (laughs) I don't know if that speaks to my own inherent optimism or that I just don't read trends very well the thing is we put the plan in place the final step of the plan being what we would do in the event of a complete lockdown and true as nuts board meeting on the Wednesday Sunday night the president announced hard lockdown was coming and in three days we pivoted completely and we're completely online so how did we manage that? I'm only going to refer to part of the plan because it's, it's really the only part that was relevant and necessary at the time. And step one for us was to firm up the back end. And I'm not referring to my personal gym plan at that point. I'm referring to the admin side of what needed to happen for us to become operational online in the event of a full lockdown. And I need to just diverge for a moment here and give you a little bit of context. Edge Inc. is considered quite a tech school. We are up there. We, we pilot tech for, for global companies. We, um, we've, we've taken children to Google. We've spent time in Google offices. We are very tech-orientated. However, pre-COVID and post-COVID, there are no cell phones in our classrooms. Uh, if, If teachers prefer to work with textbooks, they are hard copy textbooks. And that might sound quite paradoxical, being a tech school who still doesn't allow phones in class and still has textbooks. But there is a philosophy behind that, and it's because we believe that we need to teach the children that tech is a tool, it's not a crutch, which the cell phones often become. What it means is that pre-COVID, although our entire back office was G Suite, we, we went with the Google option, not all the teachers were operating fully on Google Classroom because we weren't a school that had iPads, laptops, etc. as a matter of course. We weren't using eBooks as textbooks. So we were probably still running at about 70% paper and pen before COVID. The other reason we do that is because our Matrix still write paper and pen finals. So to only be using ebooks and tablets and laptops meant that throughout their school career we're kind of teaching them how to drive a car and then they get to finals and we saying, right, go and fly that aeroplane. Those are two very different things. We gave the teachers one weekend and it was the weekend that the president announced the closure to get all of that sorted out, to make sure that every single class was sorted out with Google Classrooms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that we could move onto an online platform. Step two was to establish a very fast communication channel that reached all the stakeholders simultaneously and easily. We all know that newsletters and emails sit in parents' junk files out boxes. They don't, they're not looking at that. Um, we had played around with a little bit of podcasting before we went, uh, before COVID. And we chose this as our communication channel for what we needed to do in COVID for the fast pivot. And the reason we did that is because we could send these podcasts via the class WhatsApp groups, Facebook, email, put onto the website, wherever it was easiest for the parent to access, they could get it. And we made it available on multiple platforms, iTunes, Spotify, CastBox, whatever they could access, that's what they used. The morning of the Monday, the 23rd, Sunday night, President announced lockdown, Monday morning, Teachers are now making sure the kids have what they need um, in terms of how to access Google Classroom, just checking out all of that to make sure the kids are completely okay with all of that. Gersh and I were in the studio trying to record a very calm educational podcast to send out to our parents on what our plan was gonna be. And we made sure that that went out before the end of school on the Monday. Step three was our soft test. And what we did there was in the podcast we said, children must bring whatever device they plan to use for the lockdown to school on Tuesday. And that was a little messy. I mean, obviously we had children with iPads and some children with laptops, different types of laptops. We even had a few kids lugging in you know, desktops for the day just because that's what they would be using during the, the lockdown. Some kids had nothing. And in that instance, we signed out school laptops, school um, Chromebooks and things for those kids to have access. One of the quick actions, the very quick actions that we did take was that we'd been looking for an opportunity for some time to incorporate things like Udemy into our curriculum, not as an extramural, but actually as part of our curriculum because we wanted to expose our kids to how easy it is to access online international learning and get recognized through certification for that. So in the Monday podcast, we told the parents that softer subjects like creative arts, for example, and a couple of others, would be removed from the curriculum and replaced with a Udemy course. So on the Tuesday during the soft test, we were also getting kids logged on to, you know, getting them access, getting them registered, getting their passwords, and they could choose whatever course they wanted. Of course, remember at this time, we were still thinking that the lockdown was three weeks long. Then it was our hard test, and the hard test was Wednesday, the 25th which really ended up our first day of online schooling, or rather schooling from home. Here the idea was to run the timetable as normal with the children at home, so that any, again, any glitches or issues or whatever training we needed to be doing with the children could happen as part of our hard test. What was really important, I think, for us at that point, especially for Gersh and I, was our interactions with the children, the parents, board members whoever we were coming into contact with you know on the Tuesday during the soft test, Gersh and I were everywhere and all we were doing was in every interaction giving off that whole projection of we've got this we've got this because that panic you could feel it people were very unsure about what was coming so we've got this I mean just because we're online or the delivery method is different it doesn't mean we are no longer the educational professionals so we've got this That was very, very important for us to get right straight from the start. However, and this was the second knot in the stomach that I felt even when I was writing this, we went online and it didn't take long for that growing realisation to set in that we were not going back to school anytime soon. That we were a three-term school and, of course, when we went home in March, we were merrily thinking, oh, we'll be back at school in May and then the dawning realization, that's not happening. And at that point, we thought to ourselves, well, we have a choice here. We can look to get back onto campus in term two, knowing that we have things like exams coming up, or we can make the choice now to not go back onto campus for the the entire term two, knowing that that means we've got to amend the strategy to maintain quality education for an extended period of time from home, including how we were now going to assess children. That was the B there for term two, the assessment. So we spent some time at that point reviewing what had worked, what had not worked. There's some, I think every school sitting here can show pictures like this. We spent some time reviewing what we did well during that first few weeks, what we'd have to be, we'd be tightening up on because it was problematic, And we we, we really refined, we started really refining elements um, of the new educational delivery system that we were using. For us, these objectives were very clear right from the start. And the first one was that our learners may not miss a single day or a single hour of school and that a complete timetable must run at all times. The second one was that the quality of the teaching and the assessments and the learning experience as a whole would not suffer due to the different delivery method. And the third one was that the online experience must replicate the classroom as closely as possible at all times. Those were the three main objectives that we kept putting out to the staff. This is what we're trying to do. This is what we're trying to do. Are you replicating the classroom experience? But we also realized that to make those three objectives possible, uh, we had to have a few things in line. And the first thing, of course, was the staff buy-in. That was a biggie. There was no point in even trying to change objectives if we didn't have the staff on board. The second thing was we needed a very clear understanding of what the teachers at home tech needs were. There's no point in expecting them to you know, provide quality education when we haven't equipped them to do so. Then we're just setting our own staff up to fail. So we had identified real technical specifications like two screens, et cetera, et cetera, which we then supplied. We actually put fiber into all of their homes because we realized that 10 megs per person was the minimum. So if there was a family of four, that family needed at least 40 megs going. Otherwise, your cameras didn't work. You know, there were, there were issues. We needed a clear understanding of what our teachers' skill levels were in this space, because it's all very well and good for the teacher to say, oh yeah, I've got this, I know Google Classroom, but when it comes to the crunch and the child is sitting on the other end of that Google Classroom, it's a different story, because now the teacher's not really being a teacher, they're being an IT specialist. So what was the level of their skill? We needed a very clear uh, communication with our parents in terms of what they needed at home for us to achieve what we were trying to achieve. And to do this, we, we actually established a partnership with a local computer hardware supplier to get things at discounted prices. And if you remember, in that first six months of COVID, uh, every educational suppliers were throwing things at us. When I say we put fiber in our teachers' homes, I think we paid for one or two. The rest, the companies paid for. And we needed clear communication to our learners about online behaviors that we needed for this to work. Things like, Get your PCs and things running half an hour before school, so that if an update starts, you're not sitting during class unable to connect. So we did diagnostic surveys of what the teachers' tech skills were and what training they needed, what tech they needed to get on with it. We got, we got cracking. And it was all through podcasting. Every single time we learned something new, we put out a podcast, even if it was 10 minutes long. That's fine just to keep the parents in the loop, because we knew at that point, the fastest way to blow up what we were doing is to go radio silent. And one of the things we did learn early on was that there are three elements that make online or hybrid work. The first one, technology for communication. So that would be your screen over here on the child's desk or the teacher's desk where they are seeing everybody in the room, they're seeing the teacher and they are actually communicating there. The second one was technology for work. That's the, the screen that's in front of you where the teacher's presentation's coming through or the worksheet that's being worked on. The work is in front of them. And the third one was the essential tech behaviors that I mentioned just now. We had to have certain behaviors in place to make this work. And by the time we went back to school in term three, we realized this hybrid thing is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. That's actually a very exciting prospect. That's how we viewed it with multiple potential applications going forward for the sector as a whole. And we started turning our minds to what the ideal hybrid classroom would look like for you know an ongoing basis. So we asked questions of the people who were using the system for hours and hours every day with the teachers and the kids, and we got a lot of feedback. And then on the very last Saturday, November 2020, we got all the teachers in and we did a design workshop. And I was quite concerned. I thought these teachers are beyond exhausted. They are broken tired. But here's me calling them in and asking them to be highly creative in a design workshop. But there was was something magical that happened then because we were bringing them in to a vision that we all shared. And they were so excited to be part of that vision that they all just, the the A game was brought to the design training and we had a fantastic day. We started by designing. We said to them, this is your magic one moment. Here's your Lego. Build the the best hybrid classroom you can think of. They did that. We then put them into another classroom with every piece of technology we owned in the school. Just dumped it all in various classrooms and we said, build, build. What does it look like for you? So they just spent time building and testing and iterating and changing and testing and iterating. And we made some very interesting discoveries that day, like the fact that the visuals are not what make hybrid work. It's the sound. The sound is the challenge. Um, we did a whole lot of things that day. And it, oh, and that other thing was the, the communication, your tech for communication needed to be at the back of the room, not at the front of the room with the teacher. So some interesting discoveries that day. But it allowed us to then come back at, in January of 2021 where we had actually then built some of those classrooms. Not the whole school yet. We had put a few classrooms up. And um, according to the spec that the teachers had helped put together, so that made them excited to try and use it for, for real. It also meant that January 2021, we could pivot within a day, be fully online running, which was just as well, if you remember, because they closed us down again in January of 2021. So today we use our hybrid classrooms every single day. The whole school is now done and different specs for big rooms and little rooms. It depends on what the needs are. We have a learner in KZN who went to KZN at the beginning of COVID and has never come back, but he's online every single day. He still attends edging. We have another one who's living in the UK. He left at the end of last year and he'll come back to write matric next year. But he is an edging learner in his uniform every day at school. Um, and it's our full intention to keep expanding in that, in that space. And again, I remember people saying to us during that time that we were lucky. And we were lucky because we didn't have parents complaining that they, you know, about their school fees and they didn't want to pay them. And we didn't have parents saying that they want um, their kids to do online permanently. But you know, the philosopher Seneca said that luck is the intersection of opportunity and preparedness. And we had been looking for this opportunity to put on big fat seven league boots and take a huge leap forward in our educational space. We'd been looking for that opportunity for a while and we really saw COVID as that chance. So we made use of every single opportunity and we were as prepared as we possibly could be for that. And you know, the relevance of education that our sector had been delivering pre-COVID, if we remember back and if we are very honest, had actually been taking a pummeling for a while. We were getting a lot of questions about relevance and sustainability and 21st century education and was it being delivered and factory workers and there were a million TED Talks about how we were producing industrialised, institutionalised people instead of thinkers. A lot of us had been band-aiding. We had been band-aiding with robotics programmes and coding programmes and that sort of thing. But we hadn't really embraced the evolutionary step that we need to be making. I don't think we knew how to do it. Maybe it was all just too close to us. I do know that learners in our schools, for all of us, are faster and more knowledgeable than we are about the very technology and their skills that their careers and their lives will need when they leave us. In that sense, we, the people who are determining their learning paradigm, are constantly playing catch up with them, which brings me to the next part of my talk. I've been talking about us as a school and how we responded. Now I wanna move up to sector level and talk a little bit about how we responded as a sector. So this is where we get to the Kodak moments. Now what is a Kodak moment? Kodak moments are those iconic moments. The moments that are exceptional, either good or bad, but the ones that stand out in history and become immortalized over time. So I'd like you to take a moment to think about a Kodak moment in your school. A positive one, a good one. One that makes you feel good. One of the specific things that you did as a leader when you were navigating the educational journey of your your school and your charges during COVID. Maybe it was a moment with your staff when a light came on about how everyone was delivering their pedagogy and it was integral to how you moved your school forward. Maybe it was an app that a child actually brought forward that was so effective that you've now brought it in as an ongoing part of the way you do things. What was your Kodak moment? What will you be remembered for? This is your legacy thinking, your historical moment. Now think of the other one. This is the one you probably don't want to share. Something deeply impactful on the educational implications for your school that could have been done better. We've all got that one as well. I'm not going to ask you to share anything so you can be brutally honest with yourself. What one thing, regardless of why and circumstance, did you not get right? So we're two years into this pandemic, hopefully coming out of it, and we're learning more and more about the nature of this thing as we go. I'm not sure if it's too early to use the term post-pandemic, but we are certainly at that point where we are no longer just trying to survive this pandemic. We're no longer just trying to navigate the next curveball. I think the current Ukraine attacks are testament to that. The world is moving on from COVID. But it means that we are certainly at the point where it is time to discuss COVID's impact on independent education as a whole. And I'm not referring to the economic impact or the political impact that we went through. I'm referring specifically to our core business, the education of the children in our care. In stories about Kodak moments, what we got right, those are great stories, they make us feel good. And it was a massively stressful time, so we're entitled to feel good. But they're only great in as much as they can point us to real practical applications moving forward. Stories about Kodak moments that weren't so good, maybe those are actually the ones that are more helpful. But only if we are brave enough to really explore and reflect on what we got wrong. Then we can help fellow schools be sure that they don't make the same mistakes when they go through their post-COVID educational strategies. So I'll share something with you that I think we may have gotten wrong. I think that amongst everything that happened, the scrambling of that first few months, where we moved as fast as we could, all of us, to pivot our delivery methods, to uh, the ensuring strategizing about how we make that pivot sustainable as this went on, and we kept getting locked down and kids had to stay home, but we still wanted to try and keep uh, providing this, this high quality education that we are known for. Um, then it was followed by that endless regulatory and protocol discussion after discussion where we were trying to get back on campus. Um, much of this became enmeshed with, with the whole tidal wave of Black Lives Matter and the political wave that hit us and it was again stressful and everything that we dealt with there. And even now, where the constant COVID dread is being replaced with the Ukraine attacks. That fear's not going away. I fear that we lost something, or we we didn't consider something really deeply fundamental to what we do. You know, I've been getting questions over the last week or two of school that sound exactly like the questions I was getting as COVID began. And I'm sure you you all have had the same thing. What if my mom gets COVID and can't bring me to school? What if petrol hits 40 rand a litre and my mom can't bring me to school? That's what we're getting. So the fear hasn't gone away, it's just changed nature. So, what next for us, then? I think the the, the mistake we may have made that in amongst all that trauma, that existential dread that we've had hanging over us for two years, we may have forgotten that our, our purpose is the high quality of children, regardless of the uncontrollable distractions, regardless of the things we can't control. Ultimately, that's the one common denominator that all of us sitting here share. And I think we also may have forgotten that that core business was being questioned and was perhaps in jeopardy before COVID hit. The questions were being asked of us. And we spent a lot of time in our forum meetings during COVID discussing micro-level matters that were really, really important at that time, regardless of what it was. They were important to get us back on campus and get us um, operational. But we didn't speak much about how we were educating children during this time and what the future impact of what we were doing would have on our sector. We didn't gather data on on which schools platforms we're using. We didn't gather data on which schools were like our schooling from home, who was doing online work, who was doing um, work dropping once a week, who was doing work dropping once a day, who was only doing worksheet packs. We have no data on that sort of thing. We didn't gather any data on what tech cho- uh, teachers and children need to be operational in an online space. We didn't gather good data on what it costs and what it costs the sector, what COVID cost our sector in terms of running through a pandemic. And what does that mean? The list goes on. There's a lot of data we did not collect. What it means is that we didn't gather data. The leaders of the independent schools did not gather data on what it cost us to lead our schools through the pandemic and we gathered no data that would allow us to construct a risk assessment in the event of another national or global crisis. So right now, our COVID legacy does not currently include a roadmap for future generations who come after us, who might have to navigate another disaster, or well, we can tell them what face masks to use. So why didn't we do it? I fear that We didn't do it because we were just in such a hurry to get back to normal. How quickly could we get back on campus so we could keep doing what we've always done? How quickly could we get back to band-aiding, an education system that was already becoming less and less sustainable? So here's a story you all know about to some degree, Eastman Kodak. I'm referring to a case study that I was busy with recently. Kodak was founded in 1892 and went bankrupt in 2012. So that company was 120 years old when it died. Kodak was as good as it got in the photographic industry. Pretty much like independent education is as good as it gets globally. And we have plenty of schools over 100 years old. I'm gonna read directly from the study now. Investigations into why the giant in the photography industry failed, revealed that even though the company was well aware of the world and that it was changing, the company was reluctant to leave its lucrative production of photographic form. With the onset of the digital revolution in the 1990s, the photography industry was facing disruptive change. How many times did we hear that phrase during COVID, disruptive change? As the world moved to digital imaging, Kodak failed to realize the impact of that change and develop strategies that could have helped it adapt to these changes and stay ahead. Kodak's management was so bent on holding on to their traditions that they did not grasp the potential that digital technology could have had on their industry and this inability to keep up with the changes brought about by disruptive technology led to its ultimate failure. So our pre-COVID threat to education had a lot to do with what I've just read. Perhaps an inability or an unwillingness to keep up with necessary change, to remain relevant, to let go, because this is the way we've always done it. And like most human behavior, we can actually attribute this to some psychology. There is a way of thinking that defines this and it's called defensive theory. Some of you may have come across it when you studied leadership theory. Brockback and McGill define defensive theory as the tendency to overlook the obvious or the, they call it the taken for granted. The taken for granted are like the, the fish in the water. The fish can't see the water. It's just there. And taken for granted are difficult and painful to dislodge and more so the longer they've been there. And the prospect, of really taking a long hard look at the taken for granted is very threatening to us on a psychological level for four reasons. We may lose control, we may not win, we may not be able to suppress negative feelings, and we may not be rational. Now think back to your Kodak moment, the one that we wouldn't be sharing. Ask yourself if any of those are what held you back or stood in the way of getting something right and all caused you to make a mistake. I mean, if we look at those four in terms of COVID and, and how we responded, we may lose control. Well, at best we can say that control was taken from us during COVID. By COVID itself, we couldn't do anything about a global pandemic. And then by the government, we got to a point where the government was dictating when and how we could deliver our product. At worst, we could say that we relegated control and we used it as a bit of an excuse not to deal with our pre-COVID threats. We may not win. Well, in this sector, let's be honest, that's a biggie. We share certain things, but there's those things that we don't share, because that might mean that that school enrolls children that we could have had, or even in a forum meeting we might be discussing all the nice little bits because it's win-win-win. Or it was the opposite, which is we may may not be able to suppress the negative feelings. My teachers won't do online. They won't learn the technology. They won't use the technology. They don't want parents in their classes. Are we sure we weren't projecting there? And finally, we may not be rational. Online can never work. It's completely unsustainable. It's not the same. Well, as you know, all the English teachers in the, the room know, as soon as you move into the vocabulary of absolute, it can never work, you might as well add five exclamation points because rational is fast receding at that point. Online does work. It is working and it's not supposed to be the same. So how do we redress this? How do we redress our defensive strategies and move our thought back processes back into a productive space? How do we redress the lessons we missed during COVID that threaten our sector? And how do we make sure that our school logo doesn't end up like that one in the first slide, hanging off a sign all rusty and broken? Let's go back to Kodak for a second and look at their redress strategies and why they failed. Timing. Kodak failed to realize the importance of the disruptive impact of digital technology and didn't stay ahead of the curve. Instead, always playing catch up. Well, we still have the chance to be ahead of this curve. We are still in the window period, as long as we recognize the digital opportunity that has been presented. The second one, strategy. Kodak did not put sufficient measures in place and in time to reap the benefits of the digital revolution. And they took too long to restructure their business strategies. The restructuring of strategies is key here for us. We may not have another lockdown, hopefully, where our kids have to stay home because of the pandemic. But what do we do when we have a whole chunk of kids who can't afford to be shuttled to school because petrol's at 40 rand a litre? Do we just keep losing those kids to the UCT online school? Or do we recognise that we actually do have some strategies that we've figured out at this point? And the last one was resources. Kodak had plenty of resources which would have allowed them to take control of the digital revolution. Their reluctance to let go of traditional markets and production methods contributed heavily to their decline. They were trapped in an illusion of past success. This one's a bit trickier for us. As a sector, we're well resourced, but as individual schools, we have different, we're different in that regard. But I think that part of the answer here might be in communication. Because I heard last week, I was horrified. It was a lady on my marketing team and she said, She was talking about a a big old school in Joburg, and she said, at the beginning, they realized that they had a small percentage of students who would not be able to afford data to manage an online offering. So instead of that school reaching out to the rest of us as a sector for help, they just didn't offer anything. My mind boggled when I heard that, and I had to ask myself, why on earth Would that be the case? So what does it highlight? Maybe as a sector, I don't know, less pride, more trust. Maybe less competition and more partnership. Because I think if we could get that right, this fear of losing our past successes successes and this illusion of that would allow us to move into providing proper real, relevant 21st century education. So the last thing I'm quickly going to discuss today, very briefly, is the potential applications uh, for the tech that has been developed so far during the pandemic, and how we can actually use it to stay ahead of this curve and manage uncontrollable global phenomena like pandemics and wars. The first one is that hybrid dissolves borders as demonstrated by our kids out of province and out of country. Fully integrated hybrid classrooms mean that learners can attend school from wherever they are. Families can semigrate, emigrate, parents can go off on contract work, children can go with them because they still attend school with you. What we do is we still give them the option of coming onto campus when they are around and they're very happy to do that. It's not as complicated as you might think. It takes a very simple spec of hardware that your parent takes off to your partner shop. They fill that list like a stationary list at reduced prices because of the partnership and it's a win-win all around. The second one is that hybrid maximizes resources. We often complain that we struggle to find teachers, especially in our, our African languages. We are not moving forward as quickly as we should be in that space because we can't find the teachers. Who are suitably qualified and of a high quality or that they're just too expensive or that as a school we can't afford to bring in the new subject these are all things that i've heard repeatedly in a hybrid space this allows us to link classes and have one teacher delivering lessons to more than one class in real time at the same time why can't hypothetically st peter's grade five Zulu class be linked with our grade five Zulu class. We split the cost of that. We're saving resources on that. And the teacher using the online platform, whether it's Google or whatever the the agreement is, is putting the work up, marking the work, doing the assessment, doing everything else as she would as if she was teaching those kids all in the same room. Hybrid allows for best practice to be shared. Again, best practice is something we talk about a lot. Um, and it's absolutely valuable and vital to what we do. We all have that particular teacher of that particular subject who teaches that particular concept exceptionally well. Imagine a world where we could deliver that lesson to several classes at the same time across schools. Having a guest teacher online. Again, we've actually done this and it's not difficult. And it's very productive. And for us as leaders, the extension of that is it allows us to take our peer observation to the next level as well. And the fourth one is that hybrid just makes us better. Teachers training and professional development is easier to access for teachers because it's not localized to one specific school or organization you get the benefit of multiple perspectives because you're not all sitting as one staff in the same staff room trying to train. Courses that teachers normally miss because of geographical constraints or time restrictions, that all goes away because the courses are now accessible and most importantly, they're being offered at a reduced cost. So our responsibility as leaders, the way I see it, is to be a champion. We don't have to be the geek. We don't have to be the nerd that understands all of this. I certainly am not. But we do need to be able to recognize, to identify the person who can. We need to allow them the space to innovate, to be creative, to experiment in the space, understanding that a tech journey is an iterative process. It's a lot of trial and error, and it's an ongoing journey because tech moves quickly. We need to create the space that supports that. Our responsibility as leaders is to evaluate the practicality of those applications and of the prototypes, and we have to be able to measure the scalability of them and the sustainability of them. And it's up to us to manage the purse strings. Our responsibility as leaders is to be brave enough to see what is right in front of us, to reflect deeply and honestly About our responsibility as leaders in the current digital age. And it's we are the custodians of our schools' legacies in this space. And it's up to us to choose our post-COVID Kodak moment and make sure that it's not our badge hanging there. Because we led our schools into irrelevance. So in closing. I'd like to extend an invitation to all of you to come and have coffee with us at Edging, where we can talk in more detail about everything involved in the hybrid space. And we can show you what we've done. But again, there's a, a disclaimer on that, and this disclaimer comes directly from Gersh. Don't just send your tech people, he will not meet with you. You have to be there too because you are the champion for this, and it's only you that can make sure that it's sustainable. So bring your tech people, come and have coffee, and we will meet you and show you how easy this actually is. Thank you for your time today. And thank you for allowing me to share our journey with you and for allowing me to throw a few challenges out there today and hopefully provoke some deep reflection. I'm very excited to see what we can do with what COVID has taught us and to keep our sector strong, and to keep it relevant. And I look forward to working with all of you to make that happen. Thank you very much.
2: Jacks, I'm probably out of turn here, but speaking on behalf of our low-fee schools, I'm wondering if an opportunity shouldn't be created for our low, low-fee schools to meet with you and Gersh and take this further in terms of their possibilities.
1: I would absolutely love to do that, Peter, and really, you know, Paul, I think you mentioned it in our last meeting when you said we have schools in this sector who are working so hard to maintain that 100% pass rate, but they're doing it against every odd possible. And I I do think that that's our departure point we would be reaching out to say, right, how do we help resource these schools so that we can create these hybrid relationships that help them out with high quality education at a reduced cost? It just helps all of us as, as boats to rise on the tide. There's no downside.
2: Two questions and, and one warning for everybody here, I think. Do you actually – you said initially you had this dream of replicating the classroom. That was the instruction. <laughs> Has there been any adjustment to that over time? Uh, have you found that, that you could actually deliver on that? The second question is teacher impact. Uh, we, we went a very similar route as you did uh, at our school that tried to do all of that. And I think we were very successful at it. But I think we're still picking up on teacher burnout after all of this. <laughs> you know, j- just do what do you add, what do you take away? And, and then just lastly, we, we offer at our school, we offer the Cambridge curriculum. And what we have seen happen an explosion over the last two years of all kinds of so-called independent online schools offering promising the world to people mm-hmm. and because people are desperate and many people took that jump after or during COVID to go to private institutions or to to online institutions i think our responsibility as well established respected schools is to actually be far more progressive aggressive in our marketing of this alternative because we see those kids who come from those schools who now have to use us as an exam venue failing dismally because they didn't get proper teaching so by us not offering that opportunity for parents we're actually sending kids into opportunistic spaces where they are not served so so from that perspective also we i think we have a a real responsibility
1: absolutely so the first part of your question was uh, the objective was to replicate the classroom experience we've absolutely done that and as i said the the key to doing that was actually sound not vision uh, visuals um because having multiple microphones so essentially what we were trying to achieve is that whether their child is in the room or online, they are hearing all class discussions between kids, between teachers as if they were sitting in the room. So we tried different things with microphones, but of course, they would all feed feedback. Um, as soon as you had two computers open, they would feedback whatever it was, we, we did struggle. So um, through the podcast studio, actually we, we got professional equipment, um, microphones that hang from ceilings, you know proper boom microphones and things that hang, and we, we solved that problem. Um, Your second question was about uh, the sustainability of it. Teacher burnout, teacher burnout, children burnout, parent burnout, heads burnout. This is a real thing. Um, We've seen it in the growing anxiety level of the kids, but again, how has their anxiety and the impact of that on their classroom experience changed the way we teach during COVID? That's That's the question we need to be asking. Teacher burnout, real thing. But that's in my mind, more of a leadership question than a a hybrid classroom question, because this came down to how we pivoted as leaders. I know I had to change my whole management style during COVID to a far more cheerleading style than I'm naturally comfortable with, but it was what was required, so it got done. Teacher burnout was a real thing. That's, That's a 20 minute discussion right there, but through a lot a lot, a lot of energy out from our side. Gifts, um, you're amazing. Really uplifting them at every possible opportunity. I have to say they've been spectacular. Our last two years, 2020, 2021, we got 100% pass, 100% bachelor's entrance. The teachers have just, they've been amazing. And that's not just me saying that because I want to show a win. That's a real thing. And it's, it's, the proof is in the marks that they're getting in from these kids. So it can be done. It's certainly not easy. Um, and then your last question was about the online offerings. You know, we made a distinction early on as well. I think we had one parent who came in once and she said, you know, my child's doing so well online. I think I might remove them and put them in an online school. And our response to her was, your child's never done online school. Your child's done schooling from home. That's an entirely different proposition. And that opened the conversation to explain the difference that we, this is all still being facilitated by the school. It's entirely school driven. We are still the professionals in that space, whereas in the online space it's an entirely different dynamic. We can't, um, I've, de- I've decided personally, I can't focus on um, what's happening in that space because yes we are all losing children to that space. How sustainable that is, is another question. Um, just this morning I was talking to the ops manager and he was talking about seeing ads for an online school and all the advertising had little children in the ads. And I think we all know how unsustainable that was. So yeah, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of feeling that we're riding a wave on that one and that it might be that homeschool influx that we had a few years ago, we might just see a reintroduction of a whole lot of online schools. Children who think, oh, this isn't quite what I thought it was. So I think we, if we can ride the wave, we'll be okay there.
0: Thank you so much, Jax, for such a thought provoking uh, talk.
2: You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.